All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will, and I have the honor of serving as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And before I jump in this morning, I just want to take a moment and just give God glory for that baptism and that testimony. Amen. Can we give God glory for that? Man, I was so blessed by that in the first service and even again here in the second service. And I want you to know that if you're sitting here today and you in any way feel that you are too far uh, from God, that you are too far for God to reach you, save you, rescue you, uh, I can tell you that he is more than able uh, to change your life, regardless of what you are wrestling with or struggling with in this season. I also want to take a moment. I don't do this often, uh, but I also want to take a moment and just praise God for our band. We, we've been blessed with such an incredible band. Can we give the band a round of applause? <laughs> Listen, if, if, if High Point Church is the only church you've ever known, um, I can tell you, I've been in a lot of churches. Uh, please don't ever take this band for granted. We have been extremely blessed uh, by Pastor Josh and Pastor Tyler and uh, just the incredible, uh, incredibly gifted people who, who perform, not necessarily for us, but for the Lord. They, they come here and they lead us in worship for the glory of God. And so I'm really grateful for our worship team as well. Uh, before I jump in, I just want to take a moment and say hello to our entire High Point family. I want you to know uh, that we love you and that we are grateful for you and that we are praying for you um, every chance we get. Now, this morning, we are in the third week of our 12-week series through the book and letter of Colossians, of Colossians. And if you remember, uh, what we said last week is that the Apostle Paul uh, is writing this letter for two reasons. Uh, he has two primary purposes for writing this letter. His first reason, his first purpose is he's writing in order to encourage the believers in Colossae. That's his first reason, his first purpose. And I would argue that the first two passages that we've looked at in this series have been primarily about uh, and, and primarily centered around him encouraging the believers in Colossae. But his second reason, his second purpose for writing this letter uh, wasn't just to encourage the believers, but it was to expose the false teachers. He wrote in order to expose the false teachers. And here's the thing about the false teachers that had uh, made their way into the church of Colossae. They were uh, teaching uh, a, a doctrine, uh, a, a false teaching that is referred to as the Colossian heresy. And even though we don't know much about this heresy, here's what we do know. Uh, their teaching was directly attacking the person, the work, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the things that they taught, and we see this later on in the letter, is they taught that Jesus wasn't actually the Son of God. He was just one of many angels. Um, and so as a result, he wasn't the mediator between God and man. He was a mediator between God and man. So it's interesting that in many ways, these were the seed forms of what Jehovah Witnesses believe today, that Jesus was just another spiritual entity, another spiritual being, another angel who we can pray to and we can worship but he wasn't the only one. So this heresy was extremely dangerous because it was attacking the person, the nature, the work, the sufficiency, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So one of Paul's primary purposes was to uh, rebuke and to respond to this false teaching that had made its way into the church. And I would argue that out of everything Paul writes in this letter, this is his primary argument against these false teachers. 
Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is Paul's primary argument. It's his key uh, piece of evidence in this court case that he is presenting against these false teachers. Paul provides this argument, but what's really cool about this is that not only is this his main argument against the false teachers, but at the same time, this passage actually serves as the main passage in the entire letter. It's literally the heart of the letter. The heart of Colossians is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It is the the heart of it. And anybody who reads through Colossians will tell you that this is Paul's main point, is the peak, the apex of the entire letter. Usually Paul's peak, his apex comes later on in the letter, but here in this, this letter in particular, we have it in the first chapter. It is the heart of the letter. And what's really interesting is that what commentators argue, what scholars argue, is that this was such a pivotal passage that there's a good chance that Paul uh, was basing this passage on a hymn or a confession that was a regular part of the early church's worship. So what what scholars say is that this hymn, this this section that Paul is referring to and, and writing about was based on a hymn or a confession that was a common part of worship in the early church. So in light of all that, this is a very, very important part of Scripture. One scholar put it this way. He says, out of all the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This dramatic and powerful passage removes any needless doubt or confusion over Jesus' true identity. And listen to this. It is, a, it is vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. So this is a very important passage that we are about to dive into. So with all that said, our passage this morning comes to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage under four headings. Uh, As we look at this passage, we're going to look at his person, his power, his position, and his passion. Person, power, position, passion. So let's begin this morning by looking at his person. And by his, I mean Jesus, by Jesus's person. Here's what it says in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So so the first thing that we learn here in this passage is we learn about the person of Christ. And in order to unpack the person of Christ, there's two words that I want to highlight for you. The first word that I want to highlight and unpack for you is the word image. The word image. The word image in Greek um, has two layers to it. The first thing that the word image in Greek means is it means a representation of something, a reflection of something. So in those days, one of the things that a king or a, a dictator would do is they would create reflections of themselves. Uh, they would create representations of themselves. So they can do that. Uh, one of the ways they can do that is by creating statues. Many kings and Caesars and, and dictators would put statues of themselves all over their empire so that people would see that that piece of territory belonged to them, right? So statues are an example of this representation, of this reflection. But we also saw it in currency. In, in the life of Jesus, we have the story where the, the Herodians come up to him and they show him a coin, and the coin had the image of Caesar. That, that's that same idea, a, a, a reflection, a representation, right? 
But what it can also mean in the Greek is it can mean a reflection in a mirror. So, so, so the first phase or the first uh, deg- uh, aspect of this word image is representation or reflection. Okay? I would argue that we as humans, the Bible says that we are made in the image of God. When the Bible says we are made in the image of God, that's what it means. It means that we are God's reflection. We are God's representatives. We don't fully represent him like Jesus does, but we represent him partially. Now, our image was marred by the fall in Genesis 3, but when the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God, it's talking about the first aspect of this word image, that we are his representatives, that we are his reflection, like a statue or a coin, okay? But the word there, image, in Greek also means, get this, it doesn't just mean representation or reflection. It also means a manifestation or a revelation. So according to this passage, Jesus Christ isn't just the representation of God or the reflection of God like a human is, but he is also the manifestation of God. He is the revelation of God. In other words, uh, God, God himself is completely and totally represented and manifested by Jesus Christ. That's some pretty big stuff. Now, here's the thing. For us, as modern-day people, that doesn't really mean much, right? Because we're sitting here and we're thinking, well, I kind of heard that before. Even if you've never grown up in church, even, though, even if you've never read the Bible yourself, there, there's a good chance that at some point during your life, you have heard the idea of Jesus being God, right? Not a groundbreaking thing. But what I can tell you is that for an Old Testament first century Jew, what Paul is writing here is blasphemous. It's absolute blasphemous. Blasphemy. Why? Because when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments have to do with this very thing. God says, let there be no graven image made of me or any other God, but especially me. And Paul, who literally a few years prior to this was persecuting Christianity, he was Saul at that point because he thought it was this cult that was preaching a false messiah. This same Paul who was persecuting the church is now saying that Jesus Christ is the very image of God himself. That doesn't seem controversial to us, but I can tell you that would have been shocking to a Jewish reader. That a human being was the revelation, manifestation, representation, and reflection of God himself. You not only see it in the law, but you also see it in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, uh, Aaron and the Israelites get in big trouble. Why? Because Moses is on the mountain and the dude decides, I'm going to go ahead and make a golden calf and worship it. A lot of people died because of that. It just shows you just how crazy what Paul is saying here. And because we are modern readers, we just kind of read right past it. But I can tell you, this would have been extremely controversial to any Jewish reader. But that's not the only word I want to highlight for you. The other word that I believe is equally as important in this verse is where it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. Here's why that word is so important. Because on the surface, when we read it in English, what it seems to be saying is that Jesus was born. Which, again, going back to the Jehovah Witnesses, this is actually one of the key passages that they use to teach that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was just another created being. But here's the problem. When you look at, the, at that word firstborn in the original language, what it means there, it means priority in time. It means to be superior in rank. 
It actually has nothing to do with someone being born at all. It means that Jesus, in his relationship to creation, there is a priority with Jesus. There is a supremacy with Jesus. He is superior in rank in relation to creation. That's what it actually means in the Greek. So, so, so what we see, as we, as we seek to understand the person of Jesus, we, we get a better understanding of who he is by looking at the word image and by looking at the word firstborn. But, but here's the thing, okay? If, if, if these things are true, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is the reflection, the representation, the manifestation, and the revelation of God, if that's true, and that he is the firstborn, that he is preeminent, that he is supreme, that he is superior. If those things are true, that should really change the way we live, church. It should have a direct impact on your Monday through Saturday. Here's why, okay? I don't know if you remember, uh, maybe for those of you who are too young, you don't, but back in the 90s, uh, there was a song that came out. It was a hit song for a long time. Uh, you still hear it when you go to Hobby Lobby probably, but, but, but it's the... Um, uh, what if God was one of us? Remember that song? I'm not going to even try to sing it, but the what if God was one of us? And the whole song is, what if God was one of us? What would he do? And what would he say? Someone needs to give that girl the Bible, okay? Open up the New Testament, and God was one of us. And his name was Jesus Christ. You don't have to guess, because his name was Jesus. And that's why one of the things that really bothers me is that when I'm with a group of Christians in a small group or a Bible study, and someone says something like, you know what? When I think of God, I like to think of God as blank. When I imagine God in my mind's eye, I like to imagine God as blank. Listen, if that blank isn't Jesus, I don't care what you think of God. I don't care what you like to imagine God like. Because according to Scripture, the image of God has already been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know, for example, how God views marriage, look at Jesus interacting with marriage. If you want to know how God views children, look at Jesus interacting with children. If you want to know how God views politics, look at Jesus interact with the Herodians when they ask him about politics. Jesus is the exact representation, manifestation, and revelation of God himself. So if you want to know how God would do blank, look at Jesus. But guys, here's why this is so important. Because the God that you imagine when you're going through life, when you're praying, when you're worshiping, plays a major role in how you live. And a lot of us, if we're not careful, there, there's some people right now who are mad at God, but the God you're mad at is not the God of the Bible. There are people right now who think you're not good enough to come to God, but the God that you think you're not good enough for is not the God of the Bible. Because what you think of when you think of God is extremely important. And if we're not careful, one of the things we can do is when our, our, our view of God isn't accurate, it can have major implications on our life. One of the, the, the stories that I came across this week uh, was one uh, from Elizabeth Elliot. For those of you who don't know who Elizabeth Elliot was, uh, she was the wife of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was this uh, famous missionary who went to Ecuador and was martyred for his faith. And then Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, remarried. 
Um, and then I'm pretty sure her second and third husband died. After the third one, I'm like, hey, Elizabeth, maybe you should stop marrying people, okay? Because everyone keeps dying off. That's a whole other story. Anyways, Elizabeth Elliot, who passed away uh, a, a, few weeks, a, few, a few years ago, she wrote a, a book called No Graven Image. And, and what's interesting is that in that book, she's r- literally writing about a woman who is a missionary. And he talks about, she talks about all the different trials and suffering that this missionary woman navigates, right? And in many ways, if you look through the story, it's almost like she's talking about herself, but in third person, right? And so the story goes that as she goes through life, this missionary wife had all these expectations of God. And throughout the story, things just keep going sideways. Nothing goes the way she expects. And then at the end of the book, she looks back at her life And she realizes that part of the reason why she was so disappointed with God is because the God she was imagining was not the God of the Bible. And look what she says at the end of the book, this fictional character. She says, now in the clear light of day, I see that if God was merely my assistant, he betrayed me. But if on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. I find I can no longer label this activity as useless or that activity as useful because now the work as well as the labeling belong to God. She, she, she gets to a point where she says, if, if, if I view God as my assistant, he really dropped the ball. He is a terrible assistant. He failed me again and again. But if I view God As God, he didn't fail me, he freed me. And not only do I have to look at life differently, I have to label things differently because he's the one in control and not me. See, for some of us, this might be all you need to hear today. You need to put God back where he belongs and you have to make sure that the God that you're mad at or the God that you're running away from Or the God that you think you're worshiping is the God of the Bible. Some of us are so busy trying to make God into our image that we are not allowing him to make us into his image. So, the first thing we see is we see his person. The second thing that we see here in this passage is we see his power. We see his power. Look what it says in verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the second thing we learn about Jesus in this passage is we learn about his power. And in this passage, uh, we see uh, the two types of his power, two forms of his power. We see his creating power, but then we also see his sustaining power, his creating power and his sustaining power. The first power that I want you to see is his creating power. Why? Because the word there in Greek, create, it literally means to form or to make something out of something that didn't previously exist. To form or make something that didn't previously exist. So in Greek, there is another word for create. And it's the Greek word that says you create something, but you already had 
resources to begin with. There's something that, that you had previous, you know, material and you made something else. So for example, if you're going to get a haircut, that person cutting your hair, right? They're not doing this type of creating. They're doing the second type of creating. They already have something to work with. They're, they're creating something, but your hair was already there. Well, for some of us, right? Some of us are bald, but it's, well, that's a whole other story. Um, but they're working with something. That's that Greek word. That's not the Greek word that's used here. The Greek word that's used here is that Jesus, we see his creating power because it means to form and to make something that did not previously exist. So what we are told by what Paul says here is that Jesus was just as much uh, an active agent in the creation story as the Father and the Spirit were. He was actively involved in the creation of the universe. That's how powerful Jesus actually is. Now, now just to kind of unpack for you how powerful his creating power is, I have a, a few examples here that I, that I want to share with you. Uh, one, one of, some of the examples explain to you or display for you the bigness of his creating power. And then the other set of examples uh, display for you the smallness of his creating power. You'll see. Look, look how powerful the creating power of Jesus is. Dr. David Guzik says this. If the sun were the size of a beach ball and put on top of the Empire State Building, the nearest group of stars would be as far away as Australia is to the Empire State Building. Think about that. If our sun was the size of a beach ball and put on top of the Empire State Building, even in light of those new uh, parameters that we just created, the nearest group of stars would still be as far as Australia is from New York. Listen to this. Another example of the vastness, the bigness of his creating power. The galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains billions of stars. And astronomers estimate that there are billions of galaxies. Have you ever thought about that? Our galaxy has billions of stars, and astronomers guess, because they can't see them, based on their numbers, they guess that there are billions of galaxies. So that shows you the bigness of his creating power. Let me show you some examples of the smallness, that he's in the big stuff and he's in the small stuff. Listen to this. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are human beings on the entire earth. There are more insects in a square mile than there are human beings in the entire earth. Here's the other thing, just to show you the bigness and the smallness of God's creating power. It says, what they see, astronomers, what they see leads them to believe that the estimate number of stars in the universe is 10 to the 25th power. That is roughly the number of all the grains of sand on all the world's beaches. The same Jesus who created the stars is the same Jesus who created every single grain of sand on every single beach on earth. That's how powerful the creating power of Jesus is. But listen, we, just, we don't just see his creating power. We also see his sustaining power. Why? Because in the passage, he says, and in him, all things hold 
together. He didn't just create it. He sustains it. He holds it all together. In the Greek, the word there, hold, means to bring two things together. And it's in the present tense. So it means that he is continually holding things together. So let me kind of explain it to you like this. If the universe was a house, Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the foreman who constructed the house. Jesus is the owner and he's the maintenance guy. All four things is Jesus, according to this passage. Isn't that beautiful? That, that just shows you how powerful Jesus is. He, right now, is literally holding us together. Listen, I don't know what 2021 has been like for you. But if it's anything like me, I think many of us almost idolized 2021. We thought, man, new year, new me. And, but, but really... The, all the change was the, the date on the calendar. And so for a lot of us, the things we were dealing with in 2020, we're still dealing with in 2021. And, and I don't know if your week is anything like mine, but I, I have felt this week like I'm trying to hold things together. Maybe you are trying to hold things together financially. Maybe you're trying to hold things together in your family. Maybe like me, you have someone who's sick. I, I feel like I'm trying to hold my family together because my dad's still in, in, in recovery. I feel like the leader of my family trying to hold things together in a whole nother city. I don't, I don't know what you, you are wrestling with. I don't know what you're processing. I don't know what you feel like you have to hold together right now. But let me, let me show you what the Lord taught me this week. This week was a very hard week for me, not necessarily with my dad. My dad continues to make more and more progress. But with work, it was a very hard week with work. I had to deal with some leadership stuff, and I was really struggling and I literally, I find myself complaining to God in my prayer life, like, God, why do I got to be the one that holds this church together? Why, why do I got to be the one that holds this group together? Why me? And then God being the God that he is allowed me to study this passage. And I came across this verse and that word. And essentially what God taught me as I'm preparing for this message was that I don't hold anything together. I don't hold High Point together. I don't hold our staff together. Heck, I can't even hold myself together. Just to show you how little control I have, even over my family. Uh, yesterday, uh, my wife, Lily, uh, was at work. And so it was up to me to be dead, right? And so we were hanging out and uh, we, we, we had a great time, right? But, but I always, I don't know how this happens, but every time I'm babysitting, not babysitting because they're my kids, but every time I'm, let's just call it babysitting for now. Every time I'm with the kids, right, um, crazy stuff happens. And I don't know how some conversations even come up, but for some reason, yesterday as we were hanging out, the, the, the topic of kidnapping came up, right? And, and so as we're talking about kidnapping, here's what I told my children. I said, look, when I was younger, I was probably around eight years old. My brother was about six. Uh, my family and I, uh, we were in Chicago, and we were giving a tour of the city to some family members from out of town. I don't remember who it was, but we were in Chicago. I remember it was that it was, it was snowy, and we were taking them through a tour of the city. And we were sitting, in, and we stopped in this very populated area of the city to probably see some landmark or something. And we're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, I hear my mom scream. And I'm eight years old. I don't know what's going on. I turn around. And what happened was there was a guy, a complete stranger, had come up to my younger brother 
had grabbed him by the hand and said, hey, I want to take a picture with you, and was literally about five feet away from my family by the time my mom saw him. And if my mom wouldn't have saw him, we never would have seen my brother again. Like, it was that close, right? So I'm telling this story to my daughters, and they're terrified, right? And so I'm like, okay, so let's do some kidnapping training right now, all right? <laughs> Pretend I'm a stranger, and I say to you, hi, do you want to come with me? What would you say? And both of them are like, we would say, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> right? And I'm like, man, look at these girls, man. They're, not only are they protective, but they're super polite at the same time. <laughs> they're even calling strangers, sir, right? And I'm patting myself on the back. I'm like, man, I'm such a good dad. I'm killing it. <laughs> this babysitting thing is easy, right? <laughs> Anyways, literally three seconds go by. And I'm like, okay, let's switch it up a little bit. What if the stranger, instead of saying, come with me, he says, hey, I, I want to show you something. What would you say? My youngest goes, okay. Like, she literally just gives in. And my oldest goes, well, it depends. What is it? I'm like, no. It doesn't depend. You guys are killing me. Like, I literally went from feeling I had it all together to three seconds later realizing my kids are a hot mess. We do not have it together. We don't. The only one that has it together, even when you think you have it together, you don't have it together. But you know what the good thing about not having it together is? That if you don't have it together, you can't mess it up. It's not on you. It's on him. Jesus is the one who holds the universe together. And if he can hold the universe together, then maybe, just maybe, he can hold your marriage together and your finances together. Look at this quote from Dr. A.T. Robertson. He says, the permanence of the universe rests on Christ far more than on gravity. The universe, get this, I love this. The universe is a Christ-centered universe. The universe is more Christ-centered than we are. It says in Romans 8 that the creation groans for the redemption of the sons of man. That creation knows who he is better than we do. So, we've seen his person. We've seen his power. The next thing I want you to see here in this passage is I want you to see his position. His position. Look what it says in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the third thing we learn about Jesus is we learn about his position, his position. You see, what, what Paul does here, we might not even realize it, but what Paul does here is he goes from speaking on and talking about the original creation and all of a sudden, he switches gears and goes from the original creation to the new creation and starts talking to us specifically about not just those who are in Adam in general, but those who are in Christ in particular. He goes from the original creation to the new creation. It says in the text that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The word there, head, here's what it means. It means that he, Jesus, is the chief he is the ruler, he is the leader, he is the originator of the church. He leads us, he guides us, he governs us. Through his, through his gospel, he gives us life. 
Through his spirit, he gives us gifts. And through his word, he gives us nourishment. That's what it means when it says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But, but here's the thing. If, if that's true, that Jesus is the head of the church, then I would argue that means a couple things for us today. The, the first thing that it means has to do with the body in general. And then the second thing that it means has to do with the believer in particular. So let me begin with the body in general. According to this passage, the only way the church of Jesus Christ works is if Jesus is the head. We are a body. He is the head. And I don't know about you, but when a body is decapitated, it is no longer living. When we forget to put Jesus where he belongs, not only do we stop being dependent on him, we stop being interdependent on each other. And one of the worst things that the church of Jesus Christ can do, and yet we do it repeatedly, is put someone other than Jesus at the head of the church. We, we, we see it in church history, right? In church history, the church for the first roughly 200, 300 years, the church of Jesus Christ exploded. People were coming to know Jesus left and right until, until one day Constantine came to power. The moment he came to power, he made Christianity a legal, the legal religion for the entire empire. Now, you would think that would be a huge win. But actually what happened is everyone all of a sudden was considered Christian just because they were a part of his empire. Not Jesus' empire or his kingdom. No, his, Constantine's kingdom. And in one of the historians that I read a, a few years ago, here's what he said. He said, a lot of people think that what kills or, or slows down the church are times of persecution. But it's not. It's times of prosperity. The church of Jesus Christ took a major hit when Constantine came to know the Lord. Because then Christians got comfy. Man, if the emperor is a Christian, we're good. Let's put our faith, our trust, and our reliance on Constantine instead of on Christ. That's what happened. Then a few centuries later, the Catholic Church did it with the Pope. Let's build our whole thing around a man. And he's where we're going to put our faith and our trust. And then a few months ago, the Christian church did it politically. Listen, I don't care if you're on the left or the right. I don't care if Inauguration Day was the best day ever for you or the worst day ever for you. doesn't matter. We cannot find our hope in an inauguration. We can't. Because the church of Jesus Christ only works when Jesus is the head. When Jesus is the leader, when Jesus is the ruler, it's the only way it works. So that's the first implication. That's, that's for the body in general. But, but I would say that there is a second implication. In light of Jesus being the head of the church, there's a second implication for the believer in particular. And here's what I would say to the believer in particular. In this text, it says, this is so fascinating to me. Paul, when he writes, Paul is very just aggressive and to the point. He doesn't beat around the bush, okay? But for some reason, out of left field, in this passage, he says, he writes everything he writes. He says, and then he says that in everything, he might be preeminent. Like, what's wrong with Paul? Why is he not being more bold? Why is he saying he might be preeminent? Well, well here's the thing. Something can be true objectively, and not be true subjectively. In other words, Jesus is Lord and creator, whether you think he's Lord and creator or not. 
But just because that's true objectively doesn't mean that's true for you subjectively. And so the reason why Paul puts that phrase that he might be, he's saying that, Lord willing, in everything, which we, we are included in everything, that one day, hopefully, as you read these words, Jesus might be preeminent in you just as much as he is preeminent in creation. So, so here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay? If you're sitting here today, you might not know Jesus personally, but there's a good chance that you have, you're, you at least accept Jesus, right? Not necessarily as your Savior, but you're like, I, I don't have any animosity towards Jesus. I wouldn't be here if I, if I did, right? But here's the thing. I would argue that for many of us, the thing that keeps us from truly experiencing Jesus is not that we reject him totally, but that we see him as just another thing in our life. For many of us, and I've said this prior, and I'm going to keep saying it throughout the series because that's a very common theme in this letter. For many of us, Jesus is prominent in our life, but he is not preeminent in our life. The Greek word there, preeminent, is the same Greek word that Paul uses in verse 15 where he talks about him being the firstborn. It means priority in time, and it means superior in rank. That's what it means to be preeminent. So the question is, right now in your life, as you truly evaluate your life in this moment, is Jesus prominent or is he preeminent? Is he a thing in your life or is he the thing in your life? You see, a lot of us, we, we, when it comes to Jesus, we treat Jesus like a vitamin supplement. See, some of you are really big into health and you can't imagine a day without your vitamin supplement. My vitamin C or my fish oil or my protein shake, whatever it is. But, but a lot of us treat Jesus like a vitamin supplement. You, you, you need vitamin C, but he's not your main meal though. He's just a supplement. So if you forget one day, oh well, maybe next, maybe tomorrow. But what we see in this text is that Jesus isn't our supplement. He is our sustenance. That's a very different thing, church. So the question you have to ask yourself right now is, as I see my interaction with Jesus, do I see my reading of the Bible and praying and going to church as just a vitamin supplement? Hey, it's good for me. It ain't the main thing in my life, but I think I should have it in my portfolio just in case. Is Jesus a supplement? Or is he your sustenance? Is he prominent or is he preeminent? That's the question that we have to wrestle with today. So we've seen his person. We've seen his power. We've seen his position. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at his passion, his passion. Look what it says in verses 18 through 20. I'm going to reread verse 18 again. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the fourth thing that we learn about Jesus Christ is we learn about his passion. So we've seen the person of Christ. We've seen the power of Christ. We've seen the position of Christ. And we're going to conclude by looking at the passion of Christ, his, his finished work on our behalf. I would argue 
that out of the four things that we've seen this morning, I would argue that this fourth one, his passion, is the most important, most vital one for us. And here's why. Because the only way that you and I are ever going to be able to enjoy and experience the first three is if we embrace the fourth one. The only way that you and I are ever going to be able to experience the person of Christ, the power of Christ, and the position of Christ is if we embrace the passion of Christ. It's what makes the other three things possible and accessible to us. So what the Apostle Paul does here is the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to describe to us and display for us the passion of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. And, and he does it by unpacking for us four phases in the finished work of Jesus. The first thing that Paul does is he tells us about Jesus's incarnation. Then he tells us about Jesus's crucifixion. Then he tells us about Jesus's resurrection. And he concludes by telling us about Jesus's reconciliation. So he unpacks the passion of, of Christ by unpacking those four phases of his finished work on our behalf. So let's begin by looking at the first one. The, the first phase, the first component of the passion of Jesus is seen in the incarnation. Now, where in the passage does Paul bring up the incarnation? Well, I am so glad you asked because in verse 19, Paul says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. According to commentators, what Paul is making reference to there is Jesus incarnating and becoming a man. 100% God, 100% man. He is talking to us about the incarnation. It says in the text that the fullness of God, the word there, fullness, it means the totality and the completeness of God dwelled in Jesus Christ. And the word there, dwelled, guess, guess what this means? The word there, dwelled in the Greek, means to be a permanent resident. It means to move in and never move out. See, some of you have adult children who dwell at your house right now, okay? They moved in and are never moving out. You may not know that, but they know that. Okay, so the fullness of God dwelled permanently in Jesus. Why is that concept of permanence so important? Well, because when we look at the Bible, we see God's presence God's person dwell in different places throughout the Bible, but it was never permanent. It was always temporary. So, for example, we see God's presence in person in the tabernacle, but that was temporary. We see him at the temple in the Holy of Holies, but that was temporary. We see him on the mountain with Moses, but that was temporary. The reason why Jesus Christ is different, the reason why the incarnation is such an important part of his passion on our behalf is because with Jesus, God's presence was permanent. It was permanent. So, so what does that mean, church? Here's what this means. The, the only place that you and I are going to experience the, the power and the presence and the person of God. Listen, it's not going to be in a tabernacle. It's not going to be at a temple. It's not going to be on a mountaintop. It's not going to be in a worship service. It's not going to be on this stage. It's not going to be in a ministry program. It's going to be in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Uh, cool. I just thought I was by myself for a second. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so the first phase 
that we see is we see the incarnation. The, the second phase of his passion that we see is his crucifixion. His crucifixion. Now, now where does that come from? Well, look what he says uh, in verse 20. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, so the second phase of his passion, his finished work on our behalf, was the crucifixion. It says that, that, that Jesus, by dying on the cross, he made peace between us and God. The, the word there, peace, is, means the opposite of disturbance. It means to make two things come together. It means to bring harmony. Jesus Christ at the cross brought peace between us and God. Jesus did that. And when he died, this, this peace wasn't free. This peace came with a price, and the price was death. According to Romans, uh, Romans says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the only way to overcome sin is by paying the price, and the price is death. Jesus Christ on the cross, he experienced death in our place so that we might experience life in his place. At the cross, when Jesus Christ died, he took death from us, and it says in Scripture that he literally took the sting of death away. Death no longer has a sting for those who are in Christ Jesus. So earlier when we were talking about the image of God, we said, look, if you want to, wait, if you want to know the way God views children, look at how Jesus interacted with children. If you want to know the way God views politics, look at how Jesus interacted with politics. Listen, if you want to know how God views sin, look at what Jesus went through on the cross. At the cross, we see two things. We see God's hatred for sin on the one hand and God's love for sinners on the other hand. In the same place, we see God's hatred for sin and God's love for sinners in the exact same place. So even in his death, Jesus was the image of God. So we see the incarnation. We see the crucifixion. The third thing, the third phase, is we see the, the resurrection. Now, where do we see the resurrection in this passage? Well, that's why I read verse 18, reread verse 18. Because in verse 18 it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, get this, the firstborn from the dead. So you see, according to Paul, what Paul is referring to here is the resurrection of Jesus. Because he already used the word firstborn earlier, but he uses it again this time. And this time he makes it very specific that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from among the dead. Here's the thing. When you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was people who came back from the dead. You see it even with Lazarus. But Lazarus would one day die again. But Jesus Christ is the first person who resurrected and never died again. He resurrected and he, he, at the cross, he, he dealt with both our spiritual and our physical death. He resurrected to never die again. Listen, at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death. And here's what I want you to know, and this is super important. I read past this earlier, but I want to go back and reread this section quickly. When Jesus resurrected, what seemed like a certain loss became an overwhelming victory. But one of the things that we tend to overlook when we look at scripture, is that Jesus didn't just overcome Satan's sin and death. There was a whole nother group of entities that Jesus overcame by doing what he did. I'm going to read to you this section because it's just so important. 
In verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In that section where it says visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, what commentators say is that Jesus, he not only is Lord over human thrones and human authorities, but it also has to do with the spiritual realm. The, the spiritual authorities, the spiritual rulers, angels, those very angels that the Colossians were saying were at the same level as Jesus. You know, one of the things that you guys might not know about me uh, is that a big part of my testimony um, has to do with, the, with angels. And I know this sounds kind of weird, but let me, let me explain it to you this way. And one day, just so you know, I want to do a series on spiritual warfare. And we're going to talk about the armor of God. And I'll tell you my full story because I'll have more time. But here's what I want you to know at least in this message. Uh, when I was born, um, my dad is, my mom was essentially a nominal Catholic, and my dad was a nominal Santero. Now, you guys probably have never heard that in your life, but Santeria is a religion uh, that essentially is a mixture of Catholicism and African voodoo, African spiritualism. The, the way it was created, actually, was through the slave trade. As, as the Spaniards brought Africans through the Caribbean, the, the Africans brought their religion, and, and they combined Catholicism and African spiritualism. I was born into a household that had Catholicism on the one hand, from my mom's side, and this religion, Santeria, this cult, on the other. And here's what you don't know. My grandmother, the one who just passed uh, a few months ago, she was the one who was most committed to this faith. I would argue that out of all both sides, she was the one most committed, period. She was very much into this religion, this cult. And so you would go to her house and you would see shrines all over and she would leave food out for these demonic spirits, essentially. Okay? And there's so much more there. I just literally don't have time. My grandmother, when I became a believer in 2009, when I was 18, my grandmother was the first person I went to tell about Jesus. And I remember sitting in her kitchen in Chicago, Illinois, in the city, and the whole conversation was in Spanish because she doesn't speak English, and I shared the gospel with my Cuban Santera grandmother. My grandmother is this, was this little four-foot-nothing woman, cutest lady you'll ever see. But I never in my life have ever felt like I was in the presence of evil more than that day. I looked my grandma in the eye, and I shared the gospel with her. And when I got to the place about hell, which is a big part of the gospel sharing part, she literally smiled at me like I was sharing like a joke. She let me finish and then proceeded to say this. She said, I didn't know what you believed, but I want you to know that I'd rather burn in hell than ever believe what you just told me. That was my grandmother. I've never been more in the presence of evil than that day with my grandmother. Fast forward a few years and we end up Lily and I, well, actually a few months, actually. Well, Lily and I, and I got, sorry, I became a Christian at 2000, that was, that was in 2004. Fast forward to 2009, and, and, and Lily and I are getting married. We dated for five years, and then we were getting married in 2009. My grandmother gets invited. Out of the blue, she calls my mom one night and says, when Will was younger, you made a vow to these spirits, these demonic entities, that Will would be married in our faith. If Will and Lily are not married in our faith, their lives will be in danger. And my mom calls me that same night. She's freaking out. 
And she's like, Mom, Will, I'm so sorry. I don't remember making this vow. I don't remember making this covenant. What are we going to do? And I told my mom, Mom, first of all, let's press pause a little bit, okay? Let's turn the volume down. And I'm like, I don't know if you've read the Bible lately, but according to Scripture, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? So call Grandma back and say she doesn't have to come if she don't want to, but our wedding's going to be about Jesus. Because he is sufficient and he is supreme. That's the conversations I've had with my grandma over the years. Here's what's crazy, though. Just to show you just how powerful and sufficient Jesus is. A few months ago, right before my grandma passed, I was with her in her deathbed. And I shared the gospel with her. And that same woman who said she'd rather burn in hell accepted Jesus and today she's in heaven. That's how powerful Jesus is, that he didn't just come to uh, resurrect us, those who place your faith in him. He came to resurrect all things. We're going to talk about in a second that he came to reconcile all things, but Jesus is so powerful that in his resurrection, he didn't just defeat Satan, sin, and death. He defeated every authority, every ruler, and every principality. Amen? So we see the incarnation. We see the crucifixion, we see the resurrection, and the last thing we see as we try to understand his passion for us is we see his reconciliation. Look look what it says here in the text about reconciliation. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Jesus did all those things the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, in order to bring reconciliation to all things. And and I love that. I love that when we think of reconciliation in light of the gospel, we almost always just think of it between us and God. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. But he came to reconcile so much more than that. See, because in Genesis chapter 3, there was so much more impacted than just us. Jesus, through his passion, through his work, came to fix everything sin touched. And that includes creation. Jesus came to do that for you and for me. And here's the thing. He's reconciled us, right, for those who are here and have placed your faith in Jesus. But one day he's going to reconcile all things. Listen, it says in Scripture that at the end of time, every knee will bow. Some will do it by choice and some will do it by force. But Jesus Christ will one day reconcile all things back to the Father. True reconciliation, church. Get this. True reconciliation is not going to happen in an Oval Office. It's not going to happen in an inauguration. It's not going to happen at a Senate hearing. It's not even going to happen on this stage. True reconciliation can only happen in one place, and that's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can ever hope for horizontal reconciliation in this world is if we first bring vertical reconciliation. It's the only way it works. So, the only way that you and I can ever, ever, ever enjoy and experience the person of Christ, the power of Christ, the position of Christ, is if we first embrace the passion of Christ. And like I said earlier, something can be true objectively and be not true subjectively. Just because Jesus is preeminent objectively, doesn't mean that he is 
preeminent in your life subjectively. So my prayer for you and for me, and I'm actually almost going to form it as a question, because I want you to leave with this. As you evaluate yourself in this season, do you view Jesus as a supplement or as your sustenance? Do you view Jesus as prominent or as preeminent? I can tell you that it's the most important questions we will ever answer. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Listen, maybe you're sitting here today and you are realizing, maybe for the first time ever, that up to this point, Jesus has been prominent in your life, but he hasn't been preeminent. Maybe you have been realizing for the first time ever that Jesus has been a supplement, but not your sustenance. And right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying that he wants all of you. Jesus gave all his blood on the cross so that he can get all your life in return. My prayer for those who are here today is that maybe today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus for the first time ever. That maybe today would be the day where you say, I'm tired for living on my, for myself. I want Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. If that's you, I want you to pray along with me, quietly in your seat. Just repeat along with me as I pray. Father God, I come before you right now and I want to confess my sin. I want to confess my brokenness. I want to confess my misplaced priorities. This morning, today, right now, I want to place my faith in Jesus as both my Lord and my Savior. I want him not just to be my supplement, but my sustenance. I want him not just to be prominent, but to be preeminent. Today is the day that I want to give my life to Jesus because at the cross, he gave his life for me. I confess with my mouth, I believe with my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I, and I want to follow you for the rest of my days. Amen. And Father God, I want to pray for those who just prayed that prayer with me. God, I also want to pray for those who already know you, who, who, who are meditating on these truths and are realizing that maybe their priorities are not in order. Maybe they don't have Jesus where he belongs. Or maybe the image of Jesus that they've been worshiping is not the Jesus of the Bible. I pray that you would give us a spirit of repentance, but that at the same time, you would help us to understand and to realize that the only way we're ever going to be able to experience your person, your power, your position is if we embrace your passion. Help us to do that today, we pray. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people say.